a manifesto for a more generous world. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Yancey Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter, entrepreneur, and author. Welcome, Yancey. Hey, thanks for having me. So give us a brief summary of your life journey that, that brought you to co-found Kickstarter. Um, I wish I could say just nonstop success, <laughs> but no, no. I mean, I grew, I grew up first on a, uh, in a rural area in Southwest Virginia. I grew up on a farm uh, and my dream growing up was to be a writer, um, but I didn't fit in where I lived and, uh, and it, was, it was difficult but managed to eventually move to New York City when I was 21 years old and made a living as a music critic for about nine years. Uh, not getting paid much money, not being the best person at it, but having a really weird name, which is a great, uh, you know, a great asset if you're a writer. Um, and then during the midst of that time, writing music reviews for places like The Village Voice met uh, Perry Chen, who had had the idea for Kickstarter. And we met at a restaurant where he worked and I was a regular and we became friends and my life took this different turn uh, into starting a company, starting an internet company in 2005. Um, and, you know, and the internet back then was very different. There was no like AWS or EC2, like, you know, you had to have a rack of servers in a closet somewhere or renting out something. You had to actually know how to do things. Um, and so the experience of, of trying to make Kickstarter was the, uh, a long one for myself and Perry and Charles Adler. Um, but, you know, Kickstarter made it and 10 years later, it's still here and helping people fund projects. Um, and yeah, and up until now, I, I mean, I, I left the company two years ago. I'd been CEO my last few years there and about two years ago, I left the company and then started working on this book that's about sort of the, I don't know, kind of applying the meta lessons of, of Kickstarter structure a little bit uh, to the world at large. and just trying to continue what has been, I don't know, only in hindsight can you kind of see like the narrative progression of yourself, but I kind of feel like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to build on that now. Well, let's talk about that. You, you did just release the book. It's called, uh, it's titled, This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. You, you, you said you left and you decided to write this. So what was the motivation? Like why leave and start the book? Uh, well, the book started for me a few, it started while I was still CEO, um, and it started by watching the Lower East Side of New York, where I lived, uh, start to get remade through gentrification. And, um, you know, it's a thing we've become sort of, I don't know, immune to even having feelings about at this point, the story of like gentrification feels so old. But there was a moment where uh, Mars Bar, which was this like old punk dive bar, got torn down and replaced by a TD Bank. And at the time, it was the fourth TD Bank within a 15-minute walk of that same corner. And uh, as someone who lived in the neighborhood, it was like, uh, you know, did some virus infect storefronts overnight and turn them into chains? Like, what is going on here? Um, and so I ended up researching that and and, and, and gave a talk about that not that long after at a tech conference where I, I connected this idea of the reason why storefronts are becoming banks is the same reason why movies are sequels, all movies are sequels, the same reason why Taylor Swift is on the cover of every magazine, the same reason why every pop song is written by one of two balding Scandinavian men. And it's that every outcome is being optimized for what will make the most money. Um, and this very limited notion of thinking about value and really only seeing the only acceptable output as any decision of any decision being a, a growth of financial value. And that was 
I realized that was the only way that the world around me made sense. And so, uh, yeah, so I've just sort of been pulling on that thread. Well, I want to I wanna have you explain that. In fact, you're someone who's basically lived by not maximizing profit. So, yeah. how, but how do you do that? I mean, talk about that. Um, well, I mean, first, like at Kickstarter, really the core insight behind starting Kickstarter was that for creative projects or sort of anything anyone wanted to make, um, the only projects that got funding were ones that had a high likelihood of producing a, a good financial outcome. And so it's just money looking for projects that will create more money. But the goal of that investment is not really the, it's not really that project existence, it's the return that will happen on the other side of it. The project is just a tool for more money, for money to reproduce itself. And so the, the key idea behind Kickstarter was that when you would put up money to a project, there would be no financial upside. So instead, like you could have a terrible business plan and you, have a, and you would have a great Kickstarter project because the bar was simply, what do people want to see happen? What's exciting? What's interesting? And so that shifting of like the why behind how something would justify its existence enabled a, a huge diverse world to happen. At Kickstarter, within the structure of the company, we also balance this by becoming a public benefit corporation where you're legally required to balance financial interests with producing a positive benefit to society, a public benefit to society. So there again, you're trying to basically put, you're trying to put financial interests in a kind of a context of like, it's important, it's important for a company to operate. However, that is not the sole means of our company's importance. And in fact, you know, you could choose to make as much money as possible or to sell out to a bigger company and give away money to charity and like basically use money to apologize for how much money you personally made. Or we could choose to bind ourselves to the interests of our community and make it so that the value of Kickstarter stays within the company and stays within the community of people who've made, made it what it is. Um, and so it's just a, it's a, it's a way of putting, of recognizing the importance of financial value, but putting it in context with other values. Um, and so the book, I go more about how that would work. But yeah, that, that's been my practical experience doing this before. You included several pop culture references throughout the book, and which made it kind of fun and interesting. Which one resonates with you the most? Yeah, I mean, the book is, the book is very, it's very pop, um, you know, and I, I think it's because that's, when I originally gave the talk about my neighborhood changing, it ended up being the number one story on Hacker News for like two days in a row, like 500 comments on Hacker News of people debating how neighborhoods have changed and what that says about the essence of money. So I experienced in that like, oh, here's a way to make something that's not easy to see, easier to understand. But um, probably my favorite pop culture example in the book is, is with Adele, the pop singer Adele. And in 2014, Adele was going on tour for the first time in years. And Adele's a very populist artist, um, working class background, and she charges the low end for her tickets. It's like 50 bucks a pop to see an Adele show. But of course, because she's so popular, her tickets get scalped and go up on secondary websites for hundreds or thousands of dollars more. Um, Adele wasn't comfortable with this, she was either playing shows for rich fans or worst of all for fans who are paying more money than they could really afford to see her play. And rather than just go along with this, which is what most musicians have done, um, she wanted to find a different, a different way to structure this. And so she found a startup based in the UK that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to an artist. They would look at their purchase data, their social data, you know, things that uh, you know, just trying to get a picture of someone. And then they use it to specially invite the top, whatever, 20th percentile of Adele fans in each market 
allow them to buy tickets that had no restriction on reselling. That the idea was that if they distributed tickets according to a sort of an algorithmic definition of fairness or loyalty, that basically that could be a new way, that could be a non-economic way to distribute tickets to the shows while still people paying for their ticket price and Adele still needing to like be in the black. But it was a notion of a different value to optimize for. And so to me, that is an example of the way value is evolving and will evolve, which is that it leads to what I, I think of as a post-economic world where the economic outcomes of things are important to understand, but they are not determinant of what happens. And that actually what determines what decisions we make are other values. In this case of Adele, it was loyalty or community or fairness, but it could also be thinking of carbon emissions or it could be social impact, or it could be the purpose that people might feel. Um, but those are all things that we will learn are actually way more profitable in the long run and things that we can actually optimize for and define. And so, this is possible with the sorts of technology that's available now, the data that's available now. This is data we feel anxious about at this moment, um, but I think could be used in all sorts of interesting ways. Another example that you talk about in the book is uh, in referencing Chick-fil-A. In fact, they're a yeah. company that thinks so much about their employees that they close on Sundays. Yeah. Why does that matter? Well, what I love about Chick-fil-A's story is that six days out of the week, Chick-fil-A is a you know, fast food chain, the most, the most liked fast food chain by customer surveys in America, but like they are just a profit maximizing company. But then one day out of the week, they're not. One day out of the week, instead they optimize for community and for sort of like the us-ness of Chick-fil-A. And so there's, you know, six days out of the week where they operate according to one mindset and then one day according to another. And to me, this is a highly rational way to think about sort of the, the multiple responsibilities you have as a business and also the multiple kinds of value that you provide. Like the idea that providing value is in doing nothing at all, to me is like a, is a quite beautiful sentiment. Um, and so I look at that as like a, an enlightened way of thinking about things, a way of seeing that yes, our financial interests are important, but they are just one of multiple factors to consider. And then in Chick-fil-A, it's finding a very practical way to express that of just simply one day a week, we're closed. You know, I mean, that's, it's very simple, um, but it, it sets a clear line and communicates very clearly what they're about. It's also a decision that costs them a billion dollars a year in sales. I'm sure it does. How can tech and innovation professionals apply this approach to their operating models in the coming decade? Um, well, in the book, I invent a philosophy I call bentoism, which is a way of redefining self-interest. It's seeing beyond now me. It's imagining your future me. You're now us, the people who you rely on, your future us of the next generation. There's a site, bentoism.org, that lays this out. But I think that's a, a way for companies and people to think about their choices and to make sure they're living up to their values. And the phrase I keep thinking about is being self-coherent, like being in integrity with yourself is very hard. But that, I think, is really what we should be working for more, more than happiness, you know, coherence. Um, and I don't think that, I think that the growth of this mindset depends on, depends on a lot of tech people. It, it depends on um, our ability to measure and define things in different ways. Um, you know, I imagine coming on the backs of this, an organization that I, I will create and start up um, that will be focused on the expression and the identification of bentoist values. So how is it that we can define social impact? How is it that Adele's loyalty algorithm idea could be applied to other spaces? What does it mean to distribute goods in non-economic ways? And 
what and can we build the justification for using financial value to invest in creating non-financial value? And so these are all things that to me are like the the steps that really unlock us from where we are now and allow us to start building towards what I think are the next challenges um, and the challenges like climate that are bearing down on us. Um, and, and I think that work begins now. And so if someone is feels something listening to me talk about these ideas, like I want them to raise their hand and come join. Um, you know, that's, I'm, you know, just a couple months into this. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, that that's what I'm I'm meeting the others right now. I'm meeting the others. And and so I feel like this is a, a decades long process that I think will show immediate returns and long term returns, but is about is about just building the case and, and really making the argument for the rationality of using financial value to create non financial value. Yancy Strickler, co founder of Kickstarter, entrepreneur and author of this could be our future, a manifesto for a more generous world. Consider my hand raised, Yancy. Somebody wants to get a copy of your book. Maybe they want to connect with you personally. How can they do that? Yeah, the, the book, you can find bookstores anywhere. This could be our future, a manifesto for a more generous world. You can find me at ystrickler.com, my first initial last name. There's a contact button that goes to me. Say what's up. Say what's up. Thanks again, Yancy. And if you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.